Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. Jesus' name cannot be overcome. Never, never, no matter who tries. And Lord knows people have tried to overcome the name of Jesus, snuff it out, move it out from uh, public view, all of it. And the New Testament was written against many who were fighting the new Christianity, this new religion. The apostles were persecuted for their faith because people were trying to overcome the name of Jesus. And you know what? It continues to this day. So this week, a couple days ago, Saw this article from GQ magazine. Now, I'm not a GQ subscriber. You can probably tell, you know, by, uh, by my stuff off the rack, you know? So GQ, I ain't. Uh, I do not subscribe. But hey, in this age of technology, you could be, you could be getting articles from all kinds of uh, periodicals, media, etc. So GQ published this article by their uh, editors, right? So there's a variety of uh, voices in it. But it was titled this, 21 books you don't have to read. Now, in place of these 21 books, they gave their own suggestions. So, you know, you don't need to read The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn uh, by Mark Twain. You don't need to read The Old Man in the Sea anymore. Ernest Hemingway, he's out of vogue. Uh, Don't read The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, right? because ah, there's new books you should be reading. Number 12 on the list of 21, don't read the Holy Bible. No, the Holy Bible, they say, and I'm gonna quote, is repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious, foolish, and even at times, ill-intentioned. Instead, read The Notebook, a marvelous tale of two brothers who have to get along when things get rough. So you don't need the Bible anymore. In the name of Jesus, well, one day all will tremble at the name of Jesus and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But until then, there will be those that want to silence the word of God and put out, do away with all that's the truth. We've been reading the truth together as a church from the beginning of the year because we want to read through the entire Bible together. Now, I know most all of you, you're great Bible studiers and you study and read the Bible, but this little exercise has been something very positive. And a week does not go by that I don't hear some comment from someone saying, hey, I'm I'm with you and we're reading this or I've learned something or I didn't notice that. The book of Judges was another one. I got some, you know, reviews on the book of Judges about some things in there. Yes, there will be questions, but it's great if you're reading it for the first time or if you're revisiting it from uh, years ago and you're saying, ah, wow, I didn't remember that. I need to be reminded of that. So I invite you all to uh, carry on and carry along with us. You can find our plan right in our weekly bulletin. Uh, You can find it online and follow along. And what I've been doing is trying to preach from 
what we've read the previous week. So it's fresh in your mind. You've reviewed it. You've visited it. God's working on your heart in it. We have been reading through the Old Testament. We've made it through the book of Judges. We've started for Samuel, read a good number of the Psalms in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've read some of the Gospels, the letters. We've almost finished the book of Romans, 15 chapters in the book of Romans. And we've talked about a thread of peace that's in the book of Romans. Early on, and a couple weeks ago, I talked about peace with God, that by salvation, we have peace with God. No more warring against God. No more sin that keeps us separated because of Jesus Christ. We can have peace with God. Last week, I talked to you a bit about peace of mind. Peace of mind by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. And that's another theme that Paul reiterates through this book of Romans is the Holy Spirit. This morning, I'm going to continue in uh, the book of Romans and get near the end. If you were at our Thursday service, you're going to get a bit of a review, a little bit of a review. And if you weren't, I want to tell you a little bit about this letter to the Romans. Some say that this book uh, completely Uh, More than any other letter in the New Testament, more than any other portion of Scripture, it depicts for us the uh, the general and the specific, I'll say. General theology or doctrines and then specific, life application, how to put it into practice. So what do I mean by this in terms of uh, general? Well, I think of it is akin to a textbook. The first part of this letter, the uh, first 11 chapters, to me, they're kind of like a textbook. It's full of information. It's full of great, great insight on whatever the topic that's being discussed, but it's a little light on application. So I think back to some of my, my math classes and Early on, I remember my first calculus class, and I thought, oh my goodness, what is all this about? I'm being confronted with things called limits and derivatives and integrals. And what is this? What do I I need the limit of, you know, uh, f of x is n goes from one to infinity? And why infinity? And it's just, it was rules, and it was, it was just, you know, ways to do it. But when I got to other courses where I could see the application, uh, okay, I'm now in, I'm in um, a, a dynamics class or kinematics of machines, and I have to use this that I've, and I say, oh, wow, all right, now, okay, so these gears are spinning, and this, I got to figure this out. And I use this that I had already learned this information and now I've applied, I can apply it and light bulbs would go on. Oh, wow, no, all right, now I see what this, this derivative thing is all about. I can use it in some practical way. And to me, this is sort of the structure of the book of Romans. It has this informational section, but then it moves into, hey, here's how you apply this. I'm not just gonna leave you hanging there with this this uh, information, and that happens at the start of chapter 12, where Paul begins this practical section. I have, uh, I've called it Paul's uh, Sermon on the Mount. That's what I refer to it as. 
because it's filled with practical application. Now, those who mock God, those who mock God from GQ magazine and the culture, they might say, well, Paul, he's smug and sententious and he's foolish and ill-intentioned. No, he's telling me how to live it out. And I want to know how to live it out. I want to know how to live the truth because he is presenting us with the truth. And like Jesus did on the Mount of Olives, Paul is teaching us practical application. He doesn't leave us uh, hanging with just uh, theory, if you will. He's not some heady theologian who's talking to us about doctrines alone. No, he's giving us practical insights like Jesus did on the Mount of Olives. Jesus, if you know the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said things like, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Well, why was he saying that? Well, you've heard it said, all this Old Testament law, doctrine. And Jesus is saying, I say to you. And what was he saying? How to put it into practice. Settle your grievances before you go to the altar. Why was he saying that? You've heard it said, do not murder. But I say, if you have anger in your heart against a brother, you're guilty, you know, you're subject to judgment. So settle your grievances before you go to the altar. Practical application. Settle quickly before you go before the judge. You've heard it said, don't swear falsely, but keep your vows. But I say unto you, don't take an oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, you know, Jesus is teaching, here's how you apply this. Be a person of your word. And if you're a person of your word, oaths really shouldn't matter because everything you say is, in essence, an oath. You're a keeper of your word. Jesus gave application, specific, practical life application. And so, too, we find it in this fabulous book of Romans from chapter 12 onward. So if you read through the first 11 chapters and you're thinking, oh, man, this guy's talking about all these uh, doctrines. How do I put it into practice? There it is. And what were some of those doctrines? I am going to give you sort of the high-level, 30,000-foot overview of the doctrines there in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Paul opens the book with condemnation, sin. He talks about those who are bowing down to man-made idols that look like animals. They're condemned, condemned for their sin. They're without excuse. But then he talks also about salvation. Salvation's introduced in that first chapter too. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek or the Gentile. For it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it's written. And he quoted from the Old Testament book of uh, Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. He's got salvation, faith, condemnation there in the first chapter. By the time you get to chapter three, he's talking about propitiation. Or if you read that in uh, a newer, uh, more modern version of the Bible, it's atonement. Jesus Christ made satisfaction for sin. Then Paul talks about imputation, righteousness that is really like a gift imputed to you. Why? Because Jesus died for you. Then justification, chapter five, you're justified. You can stand before God without being accused. You're justified because of Christ. And then he talks about unification, 
You're unified. I read that from Romans chapter 6 this morning. How are you united with Christ? Baptism. You're united with him. So these are, these are some pretty big uh, theological concepts to roll with in your head. He moves to chapter 7. He says you're united with Christ like a marriage. Chapter 7 opens with the example of a marriage. And Paul says, like one spouse to another, you like Jesus. Be united like that. Then chapter 8, life through the Spirit. Talks about glorification, preservation, supplication. Supplication, that's prayer. And you know, he writes, the Holy Spirit can pray through us and in us. And that's amazing. And of course, uh, there's more. God's sovereignty. Chapters 9 to 11, divine election. Oh, mercy. You want to talk about divine election? That's a long topic. There's been textbooks written about that that I could fill a library with, as well as all these other topics that he had in the first 11 chapters. But then chapter 12 begins, and it's practical Christian life. He begins chapter 12 with, hey, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Now, how are you going to be transformed? The great thing is, he does not leave you hanging. You want to know how to be transformed? Read chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15. Just read it. Because now Paul's on this, he's on this like Sermon on the Mount, one after another. How do you do this? This is how you do this. He gives us short, practical insights on how to live as a Christian. In chapter 12, he says, use your gifts to bless the body. Let your love be sincere. Be devoted to one another. This is how-to stuff. This is the way that you live. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Hey, again, there's some great how-to. How do you apply some of this that he has just laid out. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you near the middle of chapter 12. Sounds a lot like Jesus on the sermon, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Live in harmony with others. Love and care for your enemies. Now those are hard things, but he's given us the how. Overcome evil with good. Closes chapter 12 and he moves to 13. 13 says submit to governing authorities. That's how he opens this chapter. Again, practical ways to live as Christians. Pay your debt, pay your taxes. You like to hear that? Well, at least it's a how-to. How do you live uh, honoring those who are in authority? Pay your debts, pay your taxes, give to everyone what you owe. He said, love is the fulfillment of the law. Put aside the deeds of darkness. And he lists those for us. So again, it makes life a little bit easy, right? Drunkenness, sexual immorality, debauchery, dissension, jealousy. And what does he say? Instead, behave decently. All right. That's in the middle of Romans 13. How to? Romans 14. Hey, those who are weak in their faith, don't judge them. All right? Don't judge a person because they honor one day over another. Don't, honor, don't, don't judge a person because they eat different food than you. Food, holy days, Sabbath days, hey, that's not what living in the kingdom is all about. Don't judge another you know, because of their opinion of those things if they live for the Lord. Don't put a stumbling block in your brother's way. Again, just real straightforward how-to. Don't destroy the work of God for food. That's near the end of Romans 14. It's Romans 14 is 
all about this, the ideas of days and food and don't condemn another because of what he believes in these areas of Christian liberty. Romans 15, then he says, bear with the failings of the weak again. How to? Strive for unity. Eh, this is getting a little harder now. Paul, you want us to be united with one another? This is how we got to live as Christians? Yes, it is. Accept one another. And this is his, one of his final points of application here. Romans 15, uh, near the middle, accept one another. He's, he's brought all this together, all this doctrine and principles and then this application, and he concludes it with, hey, you got to be together on this. You need to be united. Accept one another. And then he begins to get personal. He gives personal greetings to people in Rome as he closes his letter and moves to the, the final chapter, which is much of uh, just personal thoughts to those that have been serving with him. So Romans 15, I want to read to you this, this closing point of application. Romans 15, 7 through 13. And let's see how this applies to peace. We've talked about uh, peace with God, peace of mind. Today, maybe we'll touch on being filled with peace. Paul writes this, 15, 7. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. And again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here at the close of all his practical tips, all of his practical ways to live life as a Christian, Paul makes a plea to these Romans. He makes a plea to, these, uh, to his readers of this letter, accept one another as Jesus has accepted you. Christ came to the Jews. This was to fulfill the Jewish prophets and what they wrote about. But Paul, he said something to these Romans and about accepting one another. You know, this, is, this, this thing about Christianity is kind of a culture clash. And we're going to meet people and cross paths with people from other cultures and ways, accept one another. He said, yes, Jesus came for the Jews to fulfill what the prophets wrote about. But those same prophets, they predicted Jesus came for you. Came for you. He calls them Gentiles. You Gentiles. What were Gentiles? They just were non-Jews. People who weren't Jews. And Paul said, Jesus He's come for you. He has come for you Gentiles. So you Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now, Paul made this point not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. 
This reiteration is important. He's repeating it because he's trying to really emphasize the point. Jesus came for you, and it was prophesied in the Old Testament multiple times. And God welcomes you. God welcomes you Gentiles. As it is written, Paul said to his Roman readers, as it is written, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises of your name. And he quoted Psalm 18, verse 49. Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. That was number two. He pulled from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. Number three, he says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. Psalm 117, verse one. And then finally, he says, I'm quoting from one of the, the real high prophets. I'm going to quote from Isaiah. And he said, Isaiah said this, the root of Jesse will spring up. Jesse, David's grandfather. David was king. It's pointing to King Jesus. The root of Jesse will spring up. King Jesus, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. You have something to put your hope in. That's Isaiah eleven ten. So what is Paul saying? You know, these four prophecies, they're about you. They're about you Romans. And you know what? I'm a Gentile too. I'm one who doesn't have some lineage or any of that. And Paul said, it doesn't matter. Because Christ came for you. He came for me. He came for you. He came for those Romans And you know, in their time, that Roman Empire was vast. It was huge. It spanned continents. It was a superpower of the world. And like any culture, there were classes of people. But overall, at the time of Paul, first century Rome, it was enjoying a pretty prosperous time. Life was pretty good. The nation was pretty rich, prosperous, luxurious living the center of it was Rome. Paul's writing to these who are in the Rome, Roman capital. They were rich people. The classes of people existed. Yes, not everybody was, was rolling, you know, flush with cash. But there was a lot of rich people. They lived in the hills outside of Rome. And then there were certainly poor people living in the slums. And there were many in between. And that sounds pretty familiar to me. That kind of sounds like 21st century North America. They had entertainment and things to, uh, to just lull the masses. Their entertainment was a little bit different. Gladiators who fought to the death. Hundreds of thousand people to you know, go to Colosseum to watch people fight to the death. They had Roman chariot races. Those are pretty dangerous. The little chariots could crash and people would get, you know, trampled to death. And of course, then they had their religion. And what about the religion? The gods of Rome had become like a conglomeration of gods. You know, this country had conquered many nations. And when they did that, they might absorb some of the gods. Now, they were heavily influenced by the Greek culture that they had taken over. So the Greek gods and the Roman gods, they'd kind of formed one family of gods and then some of the other countries they might have uh, conquered might 
pull a God in from them. So they're influenced by all these other gods of the nations. And they, they formed this sort of amalgamation. They had Jupiter. Jupiter was the protector of the state. They had uh, Juno, protector of women. They had Minerva. That was the uh, goddess of craft and wisdom. Then Mars. Mars was the god of war. Mercury was a god of uh, trade. They had uh, this god called Bacchus. He was the god of grapes and wine production. Aphrodite. That was in the city of Corinth, uh, mainly a big temple there. Goddess of love. And then uh, Diana or uh, Artemis in uh, Ephesus, there was a big temple to that god, goddess of the hunt and childbirth and fertility. And that's just a few. That's just a few of this sort of uh, pantheistic view. They had so many gods and their worship involved observance of rituals, religious rituals where they would sacrifice and each God had an image, you know, it was a statue of stone or it was a bronze uh, relief of some form and they would have altars and temples and it would pray and sacrifice and, you know, their worship was like a deal. They had interaction with their gods. It was kind of this uh, uh, quid pro quo system. Hey God, if I do something for you, will you do something for me? So that's why they would offer, bring sacrifices and uh, all kinds of things when they'd make a request to these dead images, dead stone, dead brass. That's always trying to sweeten the deal with a better offering so that their God would do something for them. It was crazy. It was a crazy world. And it is a crazy world. It's not too much different than today, although just different uh, different gods. And what did these Romans know? If they're you know, bending over to stone and brass, what did they know of a God of mercy? Well, Paul had written, Jesus was promised to them too, the Gentiles too, that they might glorify God for his mercy. Now, it's no wonder that the, the apostle spent such a, a a large portion of his letter telling his Roman readers about doctrines because these are people coming out of all this, you know, chaos of religion and gods. And he's saying, hey, this God, I'm telling you about Jesus. He brings salvation, salvation from sin that you'll be condemned for if you don't come to his salvation And there's sanctification and justification, atonement, unification. You can be united with this God. And he'll put his spirit within you. And you can live by his spirit. Now, could they ever be united with a piece of stone that way? No, of course not. They could never be united with their gods like this. Their gods were not merciful. Their gods could not atone for sin because they were dead. They're dead images. Paul spent two-thirds of his letter explaining these these principles and doctrines. And then he said, here, let me tell you how to live it out. And he concludes with one, two, three, four times, four times telling them, this God of mercy who came to earth in the form of Jesus Christ and gave his spirit, he was promised for you. And that, that's something that he wanted to sink in. And from the scriptures, Paul's showing it's the divine will of God to unite people of every race and tongue and all under the head of Jesus. 
And he quotes this prophecy of Isaiah. In him, the Gentiles will hope. And then Paul prays. Now, that last line, that last verse I read, 13, it's a prayer. And this was his prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow by the power of the Holy Spirit. We read Psalm 23 this week. May your cup overflow. Paul's praying, may you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What was Paul praying that they trust? He had this prayer. I pray, may God uh, fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him. What did he want them to trust? What did he want them to believe? Believe Jesus was promised for you. Believe it. The world's crazy. The culture is rich and prosperous, but it's violent. You know, their culture was led by a deviant named Nero. And he was sadistic and cruel. He thought nothing of killing his his wife. He thought nothing of killing his own mother. Why? Because they stood in his way. They killed many others, senators and all kinds of people. It was a violent culture. Though Though it was rich and prosperous. So at the opening of his letter, he says, the righteous will live by faith. Not by luxuries, prosperity, or violence. Paul told them of a living God. One who was resurrected from the dead. One that could atone for their sin. One who could declare, you are justified, you're sanctified. And I will be united with you and I'll put my spirit in you. Believe in that God. This is Paul's prayer. Believe in that God. Trust that God in this crazy, chaotic world. And it can bring something. It can result in joy and peace and hope. That's God's merciful purpose, you know, which Paul reiterated in quadruplicate. He wanted them to realize this. God's merciful purpose is that you would be united with Christ and he will make you his own and he'll fill you with joy and peace, overflowing with hope. You know, those same promises prophesied so long ago, those same promises that were prophesied for the Romans and Paul put them out, they call us as much as they call those Romans. They call us to be into the body of Christ. He has called us to put aside the gods of this world. Now you might say, well, we don't have gods of stone and brass, and I'm not bowing down to a a stone relief of Jupiter or Aphrodite or Artemis or whoever. Yes, our culture is too sophisticated to bow down to a carving of stone or brass, right? Hey, but put four wheels on it and a certain logo and a piece of sheet metal is something that's worshipped by many. And what else, sir? Some of the gods of this time. Technology is a huge draw. You know, we have screens that are that are. They fit in our pocket. They fit in our pocket. They're filled with all kinds of stuff. They can go from my pocket to an entire wall. And there's a strong pull that can come from this. Hey, it's pulled me. And this can be, these things can be an addiction. We can look to them for uh, too much. 
whether it be on a computer, whether it be on a monitor, wherever. And it can become a big time sink. And it can become something that we worship to the demise of even family. And then there's other things like sports and entertainment where celebrities are worshiped. And in this culture too, food, food, it rules some people. Paul wrote the entire chapter of Romans 14 almost entirely talking about how do you deal with this? The kingdom of God is not food or drink, he wrote, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You know, money and pleasure. Here's a couple more. And they kind of embody all of it, don't they? Many have sacrificed themselves at the altars of money and at the altars of lust to the loss of family because they're worshiping that. You know, Paul wrote a letter to a very similar culture than the one we are living in right now. And he wrote to a people that had turned from that culture. And I trust most all of you in this room this morning, you say, I've turned from that culture. And I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Yet the apostle was writing a letter to people who had turned from the culture and they'd turned to Christ. But the apostle knew the draw, the pull, the temptation of that culture to pull them away from Jesus. And the culture we live in, it can pull us back too. So he prayed, he prayed, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him so that you may overflow in hope. And I want you to notice how he concluded his prayer. He concluded his prayer with this. I pray you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, this is a point Paul made in chapter 7. We can't do it our own. We can't do it ourselves. In the flesh, we're going to fail, but we can do it by the Spirit. He reiterated again in chapter 14. And now here in 15, his prayer, may God fill you with joy and peace by his Spirit. Now I know most of you claim Jesus, but are you being pulled by the culture? It pulls hard. It can tempt and it can draw and it can, it, it can turn us away from where we should be pointed. And he was living in that kind of culture and he was dealing with it. So many gods and so many idols. And just because we don't have stone and brass, don't think for a minute those gods and idols aren't pulling even on the likes of us. You know, do you hear do you hear what the culture says about God's word? It's repetitive. It's self-contradictory. It's sententious. It's foolish. And even at times ill-intentioned. You know, when we hear some, something like that, sometimes then we begin to doubt. Well, yeah, the word of God is repetitive. Yeah, maybe, maybe there are contradictions in it. Oh, yeah, that was kind of smug and sententious. Don't believe it. Don't get pulled by that. Don't begin to doubt. And if you need the power of the Holy Spirit, ask for it. Ask for the Spirit of the living God that lives in you to keep you strong to this faith. 
You know, if the gods of the culture caused you to lose your joy, ah, we chase after money. Oh, we, you know, we have an affair at work. Lust takes over. Oh, it's going to bring us joy, right? It brings pain and suffering and misery and loss. There is no joy in that at all. But the culture presents it as joy. They present it as life. They present it as beautiful. I read, I read about this uh, cheerleader who, 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 she mentioned she, she was a virgin, cheerleading for one of the NFL teams. She was ridiculed. What? That's not normal. Oh, you need to be normal. Yeah, normal, right. Go out, yeah. Enjoy the lust of the flesh. It's going to bring you pain, heartache, and destruction. No joy at all. You know, the gods of this culture will cause that. It's chaotic, and the culture presses out our peace. Ah, may God fill you with joy and peace by his Spirit. Does anyone in here need a touch of the joy of the Spirit this morning? Because I know what? I do. I, I do. I, I can say that sometimes I am pulled, and I, Lord, help me. God, give me the, the Holy Spirit to resist this because it bombards us from everywhere. Let, let's stand as we close our service this morning. And I want to invite you. I want to invite you if, if this culture has pulled on you in some way, shape, or form. God knows it can. And what did I preach to you last week? There's no condemnation for them in Christ Jesus. You know what? First of all, temptation is not a sin. I can feel the temptation in the pole, but I got to ask the Holy Spirit of Almighty God living in me to give me the power and the strength to resist that. And I know sometimes it's tough to resist. If you need some of that today, if you want just a touch of the Spirit of the living God, don't leave. These altars are open for you to come down and to just receive from Almighty God. And I say, they're open right now. And we have uh, workers here who will pray with you if you need that prayer. So let's, let's take a minute. I'm going to pray. And if you want to step out of your aisle, come on. Come on. God will meet you. Because, hey, if we're, if we're honest, we're getting pulled. We're getting pulled. School, work, neighborhood, wherever. And if you feel it tough, if you feel it tough to, to hold up, God can help us. May, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace by the power of his spirit. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, God, as we bring our service to a close, and we just ask God, your holy presence, to fall upon us. Lord, if there's any in this uh, sanctuary, even any now who might even come and step out in humility to say, I need help. We all need help, God. We all need help. We all need strength. We all need your power. God, may the prayer, may the prayer of Paul, the apostle, God, may it live through to this sanctuary today. May it live through. May the God of hope fill us with joy and peace by his spirit that we can resist the culture and believe Jesus came for us. He was promised for us. Oh God, may we receive that this morning. 
Holy Spirit, do a great work. Do a great work as you touch and anoint hearts this morning. Bless them. Keep them. Oh, God, put your hand upon them, and we thank you. Thank you for your holy presence in our service this morning. And help us all to leave with the joy and the peace of the Spirit if it's been lacking. And resist the draw of the world. Thank you, God. Thank you. We look forward to your great and many blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.